Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Hey, uh, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, and we'll be looking at it starting at verse 1. So Revelation chapter 21. Uh, I'm really excited. Not, uh, you know, I've been enjoying going through studying the book of Revelation. It's been, it's been rewarding for me personally uh, going through it. Uh, but I'm excited to be near the end because it's all good news from here on out. You know, uh, uh, we were looking at the tribulation and uh, just a lot of stuff going on. And, and to get to this chapter is like, finally, we're here. And uh, so... Chapter 21, verse 1. John writes this. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. That word new there, the word is the Greek word kainos. And it means recently made, fresh, recent, unused, unworn, of a new kind, unprecedented, novel, uncommon, unheard of. So in other words, the new heavens and the new earth, uh, they are not restored. Uh, They're not renovated. They're not reformulated. They are brand new. He says, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, the antediluvian world, uh, which was the world prior to, to Noah's flood, you know, from the Garden of Eden all the way up to Noah's flood, it was different than the post-Diluvian world, which is the world that we live in right now, right? We have the Grand Canyon, we have the great mountains and the oceans and stuff. The world prior to the flood was drastically different. However, it was the same elements, right? I mean, it was basically, you know, God rearranged things through the flood and stuff. So it was the same elements. Uh, this, the world that you and I are living in today was we were studying the millennium, the the thousand-year reign of Christ, the kingdom age. That is going to be drastically different as well. Towards the end of the Great Tribulation, great earthquake that the world's never seen before. Islands are going to disappear. The world's going to be completely transformed. However, it's still the same elements. But when we get to now, here in chapter 21, it's not the same elements. Because the world, those elements, they're going to be, they're going to be burned up. In fact, uh, we saw that last week at the end of the millennium, uh, chapter 20, verse 11, at the great white throne judgment, it says, Earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Peter describes it in his letter, his second letter, chapter 3, verse 10. He says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will uh, will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. I mean, completely gone, obliterated, the elements that we know of today. Jesus said in Matthew twenty four thirty five, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So even Jesus said, Heaven and earth is going to pass away. Isaiah prophesied this. Isaiah 65, verse 17. He writes, For behold, this is Lord speaking through Isaiah. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Can you picture that? When we see the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to have a hard time remembering what it was like before. I grew up in uh, 
California, in Northern California, in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 60s. I was born in Canada. My parents emigrated to Campbell, California, uh, where I grew up for a number of years. And then we moved to San Jose, uh, which is right next to Campbell, and, and uh, lived there until I was about 18 when I went into the military. When I was a kid, that area there was the prune capital of the world, uh, San Jose. They had a great big canneries, and there's certain ones you drive by, and it smelled like prune juice everywhere you go in. Um, but anyways, it was loaded with orchards and fields and farms. That's my memory of what's now known as Silicon Valley. It was when it got tr- totally transformed. And I saw, as a kid, I saw one by one those orchards being torn down and subdivisions put up and strip malls and companies and, and different things. And, and, you know, now I go back, my mom still lives there, and I go back and visit. And, and sometimes I go, man, I'm trying to remember what exactly was here. Other places I go, man, I remember there's a field I used to play in over here, a treehouse that we used to play in and stuff, totally gone and stuff. But I still kind of have a memory but for you and I, when we see the new heavens and the new earth, as it says there in Isaiah 65, or excuse me, uh, yeah, 65 verse 17, the former things won't be remembered. They're not even going to come to mind anymore. The new heaven and the new earth will be completely new, new elements. And then John says something kind of curious here, and he doesn't really elaborate on it, but he says also there was no more sea. Now, I'm not a surfer, so that doesn't bum me out, or you know, I'm not a sailor or anything like that. So people that love being on the ocean, that's probably like, what? But um, for whatever reason, and then John doesn't elaborate it. So, I mean, we can speculate all we want. Um, we do know that there's going to be a, a river of life there. We see that in chapter 22. But right now, water covers 70%, roughly, about 70% of the surface of the earth. Now, we're not told how large the new earth will be. But if you think about it, if 70% of this planet that we live on right now is uninhabitable, mankind lives on the other, right? On, on terra firma, basically. Um, which, so we're limited. The new heavens, now I don't know, or the new earth, excuse me, I don't know if it's going to be the same size as this earth, but it's going to be completely habitable. Lots of room for everybody there. Uh, encouraging. You won't get there and it's like, there's no room for you. (laughs) Uh, Verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. New Jerusalem, the city of God. You know, Abraham waited patiently for this city. It says in Hebrews 11, verses 9 and 10, by faith, He dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He wasn't even, he wasn't, you know, if you think about it, Abraham was one of the most wealthy people in his generation in that whole area there, and he never built a house. He just lived in tents because he was waiting by faith for New Jerusalem. It goes on further in Hebrews 11, verse 16. It talks about other men and women of old, including Abraham. It says, but now they desire a better that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is New Jerusalem. 
that we're talking about. It's not renovated. It's not cleaned up. It's not remodeled. It's completely new. In fact, the Young's literal translation says, coming down from God out of heaven. John 14, Jesus told his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. And one of the things that we're going to see here in a little bit is that it's spacious. There is plenty of room and it's beautiful. Um, It's prepared, he says, as a bride adorned for her husband. I've performed a number of weddings as as a pastor and I've been to a number of weddings and I've never seen an ugly bride. Brides are beautiful on their wedding day. And so you just get this picture, this new Jerusalem is going to be beautiful. Let's look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. The tabernacle of God is with men. That tabernacle really means just a tent or a dwelling place. The tabernacle in the wilderness was where God met with the children of Israel as they were traveling from Egypt going to the promised land. It refers to God's presence. Think about that. Think about that. God, the most infinite mind, the intelligence that created everything that you and I see so magnificently. I mean, you look at just uh, how amazing creation is and the mind that created that. Think about the most wise person that you know of, and he's the fount of all wisdom. Think about the most powerful, powerful person around, and God is, of course, almighty. He's all-powerful. He's the most powerful. The God of the universe, he wants to dwell with his people. He wants to tabernacle with them. That's God's goal for heaven, to dwell with you and with me, to have fellowship, to have communion with us. And you know what? He wants fellowship with us right now. So i got to ask you this rhetorically. Do you want it as much as he does? Because that's his goal for us, is to be in fellowship with him. It says, he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them, and be their God. I mean, just I just have a hard time wrapping my mind around that. The God of the universe, I'm going to see him, I'm going to dwell with him. I'm going I'm to be hanging out with him in heaven. What won't be present in the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem? It says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Robertson's word picture says, he shall wipe out every tear out of their eyes. And, and, and you know, some people have this sense of, you know, when we get to heaven, we're going to be crying because maybe the lost opportunities, you know, we, we didn't, we missed this or we missed the boat here, we missed the boat there, or some kind of failures as believers on our part, or, or maybe we'll be grieving over friends and family that we were praying and witnessing to, but they never came to faith in the Lord, and they're not there, and so we're going to be weeping and God's going to wipe away our tears. I don't think that's what it's saying. It's not that we will cry in heaven. Remember Isaiah 65, 17 that I said to you, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. 
in my mind, I think of when we see the glory of the Lord, everything fades away. Maybe today you have a question. You know, I don't know why the Lord allowed this in my life, or I don't know why this person was taken from my life, or, or, or you know, why things are the way they are. And, and when I get to heaven, I want to ask the Lord those things. I don't think when you get to heaven and you see God in his glory, it's just going to, it's not going to matter. You're there, and he's there. All those questions just fade away, I, I think. So all the suffering for his sake will be replaced with joy and blessing of his presence. Look at that, no more death. Imagine that, no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Verse 5, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Now, if you were here as we studied, started the study in Revelation chapter 1, you'll recall that Jesus appeared to John there on the island of Patmos. And he told John in, in verse 19, he says, Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. And so as John is having this vision of heaven and, and all the things that are taking place, he's making notes. He's writing things down. And, and at, at one point, maybe a couple points, you know, the angel says, stop writing. This is, this is just for you to know of, you know, right now. It's, it's, don't write. But, but all these other times he's been writing and he's be, been recording. But now he sees new heavens, new earth, and new Jerusalem. And it's like he just dropped his pen. He's just like awestruck over what he sees. And it's almost like God says, hey, John, John, write. <laughs> Come on, you're here to write. You're not here to just stare. Write. Write the things. He says, for these words are true and faithful true opposite to what is fictitious opposite to what is counterfeit opposite to what is imaginary simulated or pretended opposite to what is imperfect defective frail or uncertain his words are true and they're faithful they're worthy of our trust his words can be relied on verse 6 and he said to me it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. I want to read a, a verse to you out of Isaiah 44, verse 6. It says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. I don't know if you've ever spoken with a Jehovah's Witness, but if you ever have them come to your door, you can ask them, hey, you can have them, hey, turn to Isaiah 44, verse 6, and tell me, who is saying this in Isaiah chapter 44? And without doubt, their answer is going to say, Jehovah is answering. Jehovah is speaking there in Isaiah 44, verse 6. The Lord God, I am the first and the last. Then take them to Revelation, to Revelation chapter 1, verse 8 where Jesus is speaking, and Jesus is, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And say, who's speaking there? Well, it's Jesus. Look at verse 11. Well, you don't have to turn. You tell them to look at verse 11 of chapter 1. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. My point is, 
Jesus, this is, this is speaking of the triune nature of God, the Trinity, and it's also speaking of the deity of Jesus Christ. I think you might, you know, the Jehovah's Witness would probably be like, oh, you know, maybe they, I don't know, maybe they've been prepared to answer for that, I'm not sure. But The Lord God says, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. I don't know how many of you are businessmen here, but, you know, that's not a good business model, is it? Giving water freely to him who thirsts. What's the business? What should be the business model? Hey, you see a need? I watch Shark Tank, okay? You see a need. You see what it takes to meet that need. And then you give it away free. Now you're supposed to sell it, right? That's how, you, that's how you make money. Aren't you glad that Jesus, that God doesn't try to make a profit off of you and off of me? He gives freely to him or her that thirsts. And so I'd ask you and I ask myself this this morning, are you thirsty for the Lord and for the things of the Lord this morning? Are you thirsting for him? Because he doesn't force feed you. He doesn't shove a bottle down your throat and say, drink, swallow, you know, plug your nose so you have to swallow and stuff. He doesn't do that. But he wants to meet our spiritual thirst. He wants to meet us. He wants to, he wants to satisfy that, that deep longing for fellowship in our hearts with him. But the problem is we have to come to him. He's not going to force you or he's not going to force me. See, sometimes you might talk to somebody and say, how are you doing? Well, I'm kind of going through a dry time right now. I'm kind of in a drought in my walk with the Lord or whatever like that. It happens from time to time. But listen, that's never the Lord that's caused that. He wants to meet our, he he gives water freely. We're the ones that cause ourselves to suffer spiritual drought. So this morning, are you thirsty for the Lord? Man, we'll pray at the end of the service. And he, He wants to meet your need. He wants to fellowship with you this morning. I love Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. In fact, back in the uh, early 80s, we actually, there was a worship song, and, and I'm not going to sing it because you guys would leave if I did, but uh, Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you the sure mercies of David. Jesus said, just come to me. I'm going to give water freely to anyone who thirsts. Moving on here, verse 7. The Lord God says this, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Remember from verse 5, Looking back at verse 5, who's been speaking all this time from verse 5 until verse 8? It's he who sat on the throne. Look how he speaks about the overcomer in, his, in this life. What's the overcomer? It's the person who through faith and obedience overcomes the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's the overcomer. And what does he speak about the overcomer? He shall inherit all things. 
I will be his God and he shall be my son. Or, if, or of course, a daughter too, right? But contrast that to chapter 20. You just got to turn to the left there to chapter 20, verse 11. At the great white throne judgment, it says, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. Back in chapter 6 of Revelation, the opening of the sixth seal, it says, And all the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of a lamb. See, the wicked... When they see the face of God, they have to hide. They, they, they want the, the mountains to fall on them. Earth and heaven floods, flees away from the presence of him who sits on the throne. But you and I, man, his great love for you and I through Jesus Christ, his overcomers, we're going to be his sons and daughters. Everyone else, of course, will have their part in the lake of fire. Speaking of contrasts, what we've been studying just now about heaven. Later on, we're going to be reading that the nations are going to bring their glory into the, into New Jerusalem, the nations that are saved. We get to heaven. There's going to be multitudes of people. You're never. Maybe you feel alone. Maybe you're lonely. You know, you you feel like nobody's ever hanging out or calling you or anything. You're going to have plenty of fellowship when you get to heaven. In fact, if you're a loner, maybe that'll be tough. I don't know, but you're going to have plenty of fellowship. There's lots of people in heaven. There's worship in heaven, as we studied going through the book of Revelation. There's joy in heaven. There's a place and an inheritance. There's a sense of belonging. We're finally home when we get to heaven. Of course, there's no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, and no more pain. Now contrast that with the lake of fire. With the lake of fire. You know, some people joke and say, well, you know, I, I don't want to go to heaven. I want to go to hell because that's where all my friends are. I'm going to be partying with my friends in hell. No, you're not going to be partying with your friends in hell. The Bible speaks of hell as blackness of darkness forever. It also speaks of outer darkness. Oh, there will be a lot of people in the lake of fire, but you won't be hanging out with them. It's going to be kind of like an eternal solitary confinement. For each and every person, darkness, blackness, you're not even going to see who else is in there. You're just totally isolated and yet suffering eternally. In other words, there's going to be no friends, no fellowship for all of eternity. Instead of worship and joy, the Bible says there'll be sorrow, crying, weeping, gnashing of teeth, and torment. Instead of eternal life and no more death, which, man, I can't wait for that those that are in the lake of fire, it's an eternity of dying, but listen to this, but they'll never become dead. It's an eternity of dying, but never becoming dead. Why? Because at the end of chapter 20, death was thrown into the lake of fire. So people won't even be able to die, but they're going to be dying, but they won't, it won't be, they won't be put out of their misery, in other words. They'll be constantly, perpetually suffering into eternity. What a contrast. Verse 9. Then one of the angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. 
And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now, some of the commentaries, commentators, I should say, they question if this is a literal city that's being described here or if it's some sort of symbolism for the church because... The bride, we know, is the lamb. You know, the bride is, is, is the lamb's wife. It's, that's the church, right? We're the bride of Christ. But I think this seems to be an actual city and is the dwelling place not only of the church, but also of all the saints of all the ages. And so John describes the glory of this city. And remember, he's describing, uh, at this point, all things have become new. You know, it's, it's not going to be like we know now. So he's trying to explain the new heaven and the new earth based on what his knowledge is here on this earth with the elements and all this stuff. How do you describe it? He just describes it the best he can. He says, The holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, it has the glory of God. You know, today... I don't know about you, but I'm awed by God's incredible handiwork and creation. It's just amazing. I was I was uh, listening to something about uh, in the oceans. You know, you go down to where there's no light, and I mean miles down in the bottom of the ocean, and there's so many beautiful colors down there, and there's nobody who's going to see it. And yet God created that. You know, it's just it's just it's, it's amazing how God. You know, we see His handiwork in creation so much so that Paul says in Romans that creation itself is a testimony to the existence of God creation itself well new jerusalem it has been prepared by God and just as the first creation reflected his glory so too new jerusalem is going to reflect the glory of God in its design so john tries to describe it her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. We'll see in a few verses later that the source of light in New Jerusalem is God himself. So what he's describing in this city is just reflecting the light and the glory of God. I like what John Walvoord says in the book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, The believer in Christ Jesus does not generate the light of Christ, but he should both reflect and transmit its glory without blurring the beauty and the loveliness of Christ. We don't generate any light, but we're to reflect the light of Jesus Christ in us. And hopefully you and I, we don't, we don't blur the image. You know, we don't mar the image. People, people can see Jesus clearly in us. That's quite a challenge. Verse 12 Also she had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and twelve gates uh, and twelve angels at the gates, the names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel, three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And I have to say this, we gates. (laughs) Sorry, I took German for, uh, that should be V gates, or no, we gates. I took German for a couple years in uh, school, but. I was, I, I was listening to this audibly, this chapter over and over again as I was working this week and, and uh, in the past. And every time I get to this verse, I always say, we gates. But anyways, um, skip that. So the city has a wall. Now, it's not needed for protection 
from any invaders, right? There's not going to be any invaders. It's also not needed to keep people from going out. It's not like North Korea where you can't leave, you know, or the Iron Curtain or anything like that. So what is it speaking of? Well, the only thing I can think of, it must speak of strength and security. Man, the security of, of New Jerusalem. And it says that the gates have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on them. Well, we know God has incorporated both Jew and Gentile into one family in heaven, but I think it's a reminder of his faithfulness to his covenant to Israel. God has not given up on Israel. There's a remnant that will still come to faith in the Lord in the last days. Verse 14, Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Listen, think about this. Just like there were 12 gates around the city with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, there was no blank gates with, with like a, a blank placard. Like, you know, once this person would come up with a name of another new tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? There were 12 tribes of Israel. We know all their names. That's what's on the gates. Well, these foundations, they have, there's 12 foundations, and I think it's significant which makes me wonder if there's the 12 names of the 12 apostles. Which 12 apostles? Because remember, uh, remember they, verse, they, they drew, lot, drew lots, cast lots for Matthias? But is, is Matthias' name going to be on one of the gates or is it the apostle Paul? Kind of curious. Um, we'll know when we get there. But more importantly, there's no more blank placards on these foundations to be determined later. And I do think this is significant. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.11, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. What is an apostle? The word literally means a delegate or an ambassador. We can say it's a sent one, someone who's sent. And Christians can be called to an apostolic ministry in a sense of being sent or called as an ambassador for Christ. In fact, all of us are ambassadors for Christ. But I am very hesitant, personally, I'm very hesitant to call anyone alive today an apostle. I know some people call themselves apostles. I would be very hesitant to call anyone an apostle, certainly not in the same sense as these 12 apostles. That foundation has already been laid. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, verse 19 and 20. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So I think it's significant. The foundations, the 12 apostles, and there's no, no room for future apostles. Verse 15. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. It sounds like a cube is what it's being described. Although some people said it's a triangle um, or a pyramid, I should say. But it sounds like a cube. In fact, the, the, the Holy of Holies was built as a cube, obviously a lot smaller than this, but um, Henry Morris, the Creation Institute, has done some calculations and said that this is 1,380 miles wide, high, and deep. 1,380 miles. He did a little thing and he superimposed it on a map of the U.S. 
And he says this new Jerusalem would stretch from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico and from the Atlantic Ocean to Colorado. That's a huge city. That's, that's very big. But it makes me kind of make sense when we read what Jesus said in John 14, verses 2 through 3. He says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I want you to be comforted this morning knowing there's a place for you in heaven, if you have, if your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life, if you have a relationship with Jesus, there's a place for you. Have you ever been traveling? I, uh, Teresa and I have done this before, and we're going to be going on a trip to a family reunion uh, up in Canada, actually. And you know, I'm the kind of guy that likes to just hit the road. And when we get it starts getting dark, okay, let's start looking for a place to stay. That can sometimes be good. Sometimes it could backfire if you're in a town and you, every hotel's got a sign that says no vacancy. It's like, okay, now what do we do? We keep driving, you know, or whatever. Um, listen, when you and I get to heaven, there's not going to be a no vacancy sign. There's plenty of room for everybody in New Jerusalem. In fact, Henry Morris did some more calculations, and I, I didn't write them in here because I'm like, well, it's a lot of speculation. But he did this math of how many believers through the centuries and stuff, and I don't know how he came up with the number. But basically, he came up to the fact of the dimensions of New Jerusalem. It'd be like, uh, I think it was something like uh, 10 acres or something per person or something. I don't know. It's Who knows? But point is, it's a big city. There's plenty of room. And it's a cube, too. It's not just flat. Multi-level. Verse 17, then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. Excuse me. Now, are these the same precious stones that you and I know today? You know, jasper and, you know, amethyst and stuff. Um, not sure. It could be. But again, remember everything's new there. Maybe John's, but one thing here, John doesn't say it was like a jasper or like, a, you know, he just says it was jasper. So I don't really know. Um, but what I am going to say, it's got to be amazing. It's got to be amazing to look at that, the beauty all the different colors and the and the and the light, different light shining through these different uh, minerals or whatever they are. It's got to be amazing. Verse twenty-one: the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Now, if the gold, if the gold, and the precious stones are the same as you and I know it today. Think about that. You know, here in this life, we greedily lust after those things in life, right? He who gets the most gold wins. You know, that's kind of that, you've ever seen that bumper sticker, you know? People sometimes exchange their values in order to obtain more gold, more riches, more wealth, more materialism. Uh, so we set, it's a, it's a temptation to set our affections on those things, and yet in heaven, it's building material. 
<laughs> Think about it. It'd be almost like somebody today, you know, trading their values, greeting lustily after sheetrock, two-by-fours, and chunks of asphalt that they found in our parking lot, because there's chunks of asphalt out there. You know, I, I think the angels, they, they look at us, you know, we're striving after these things, and they look at us going, man, what is, the, I mean, that's a two-by-four up here in heaven, you know, sheetrock. <laughs> we just, we pave the streets with this thing, and they're, they're just all, they got their hearts set on this stuff kind of puts it into perspective. Verse 22. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Notice God and the Lamb are mentioned twice uh, in here. Why? Because I think the Lord Jesus Christ, in his appearance in heaven, it's always going to remind us of the great sacrifice that he made for us to enable us to spend eternity with him in heaven. We're always going to be reminded that he's the lamb who sacrificed for each one of us. I think we're never, never going to get tired of seeing that. There's no need for a temple, John says, or for the, or excuse me, no need, yeah, no need for a temple or the sun or the moon for light, says the Lord God himself and the lamb is going to be our temple. He's, they are going to provide our light. Um, our illumination will emanate from their presence. You know, everything that we need to see, it's, they're going to provide it for us. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. <coughs> Think about that. Let that sink in right now. You know, right now, I believe the Lord's calling me to do X or Z or something. I've read God's word and I feel the Holy Spirit speaking to me. And so, you know, I need to do this thing. But, but it's walking by faith, right? That's what we do. That's the Christian life is. We walk by faith right now. We try to discern God's will. Sometimes it's not very easy to discern God's will in certain circumstances, we listen for his voice, and of course there's so many voices that are speaking to us, that are competing, and we have, to, we have to listen for that still small voice or listen to the voice of our shepherd. Sometimes we're in the dark. We don't know why God does what he does or why he allowed certain things to happen in our lives. That's what we're experiencing now as Christians. But when you and I get to heaven, everything makes sense. There's no darkness. There's no misunderstanding. There's no fogginess. He's right there. He will answer every question you have. It'll all make sense in heaven. We won't have to walk by faith. By faith, we'll see him face to face. There'll be no more guessing or trying to discern. There'll be no more questions with no answers. I can't wait for that. Verse 24. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth uh, bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
you know, um, again, we're going on a trip pretty soon, and, and uh, we're making reservations. So my wife likes to do that. I'm, I'm, I'd rather just drive and figure it out as we go. But we're making reservations for places. And, uh, you know, you need to make a reservation for heaven. <laughs> Don't just get there and hope that you make it in there. You need to make a reservation. And there's only one way to ensure that your spot is reserved in, in the new Jerusalem in the new heavens and the new earth, and that is if your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. That's the only criteria. That's the only criteria. To put your trust in Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, and invite him into your heart to be your Lord and Savior. That's it. Easy for us. For Jesus, man, it cost him everything, right? He shed his blood. He, shed his, he gave his life for us to enable us to do that. I don't know about you, but this is a very encouraging chapter. Can you imagine... No more sin. You know, today, right, we lock our house up. It, you know, I keep it open during the daytime, but in California, you didn't do that. But here, you, you know, you keep it open during the daytime. I sometimes forget, and the garage has been open all night. It's like, oh, I should have closed it. You know, because at night, things happen, even here in Rochester. So, you know, you close up things at night. But in heaven, man, there's no night. There's no invaders. There's nobody to steal anything. Can you imagine just the, don't you have to worry about anything when you get to heaven? No sin, there's no enemy, there's no temptation in heaven. No temptation to sin. There's no sinful flesh to struggle with anymore. I can't wait for that. It'll be pure, unfettered fellowship with the Lord God Almighty as one of his sons or his daughters. And that's God's goal for each one of us. He wants that for us, to be in that kind of a relationship with with him. Why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. We're going to have communion this morning, so after we pray, I'll have you sit back down and I'll have the worship team come on up. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, just trying to wrap our, our minds around what the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem will be. Lord, it's just, it's, we're hindered because of. The, the world that we live in right now, trying to put it into concepts that we can understand here. And Lord, I have to believe it's just going to be that much more amazing than what we can even imagine. Even our, even our, our wildest dream, Lord, the heaven's going to be so much greater than that. And Lord, the best part is, is being with you, being in pure fellowship with you and pure fellowship with one another. Lord, what a joy that is. And Lord, I know that you desire that fellowship with us right now. Lord, you gave your son to die on the cross in order to enable us to have a right relationship with God. And so, Lord, we thank you for giving your life in exchange for ours. Lord, for taking our sins upon you on the cross. And Lord, in exchange, you gave us your righteousness so that we can stand before God without shame without fear, by grace. Lord, thank you for that gift of salvation. And Lord, I thank you that this life is not the end, Lord, but that for those of us that have a personal relationship with you, Lord, we're already living eternally, Lord, and we will uh, one day be seeing you face to face. And so, Lord, I pray that we might be encouraged this morning. And I pray, Lord, also that we might thirst for you even now. Lord, that we might desire that fellowship, Lord, that you want with each one of us. Lord, if we've 
uh, entered into a dry period in our in our walks, Lord. Maybe we just we just we just feel like we're not hearing you, or or it just seems like we pray and it just bounces off the walls, Lord. I know it's because of us. It's not because of you, Lord God. And I pray if that's the case of any of us that are going through a dry spell spiritually, Lord, that we would come to you, the fountain of living water, and that, Lord, you say you give it freely to anyone who asks, anyone who thirsts. And, Lord, this morning we're thirsty. We desire more of you this morning, Lord. So I thank you for your word this morning. We bless you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can go ahead and be seated.